Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Sarah Dowdy. And I'm Dublina Chakravorty. And June is Pride Month, so we're going to be focusing this episode on gay history. And we're going to start off with a little discussion about symbolism. And the rainbow flag today is recognized internationally as a symbol of gay pride. It's what you're most likely to see on homes or cars, you know, bumper stickers, festivals, whatever. The pink triangle is still a recognizable symbol, but one that's a lot less common, I'd say, than the than the rainbow flag. But while it's now another symbol of gay pride, it started out actually as a badge of shame, a way for guards at Nazi concentration camps to recognize gay prisoners, just as the yellow triangle signified Jewish prisoners. That transformation of 1920s Germany, where an early gay rights movement was brewing to a world where being gay could land you in a concentration camp was quick. And really the saddest thing about the story, besides all the deaths, is that it went largely undiscussed until the 1970s. It really did, as long as homosexuality was still criminalized. And we're going to talk about how the very same law that allowed Nazis to arrest gays was on the books in Germany until 1969. Um, So as long as that was still the case, survivors largely kept their stories to themselves, meaning there were few accounts from these men who managed to survive internment. And it also means that a lot of the numbers are vague. There's not a whole lot of research on this. According to the United States Holocaust Memorial Museum, anywhere from 5,000 to 15,000 gay men were sent to camps before the war's end. And of course, even at the high end, those numbers are much lower than the millions of Jews persecuted and murdered during the Holocaust, and also lower than the estimated 200,000 Roma and 200,000 mentally or physically disabled victims. But as we'll see, the survival rate for gays was particularly low due to prejudices among the guards, and even fellow internees. So in this episode, we'll talk about what life was like for German gays before the war and during, plus how people are finally remembering and recognizing that loss today. Yeah, but before we get into all of that, to give background to this story, we're going to have to start in 1871 when paragraph 175 of the criminal code was put into effect not too long after German unification. So paragraph 175 criminalized male homosexuality, but it also really gave the gay rights movement that was starting to um, pick up steam at the turn of the century, a true focus because they were really concerned with repealing the law. By the 1920s, paragraph 175 hadn't been successfully repealed, but gays and lesbians in Germany were enjoying a lot more freedom under the Weimar Republic. They had access to meeting places. They could publish magazines and literature. It was a, a more open time than it had been. However, as the Nazi party began to rise in power, interest in suppressing that subculture started to increase. According to the Nazi ideology, which had its own sexual agenda to push involving increasing the Aryan birth rate and purifying the race, homosexual men were anti-Germany and politically dangerous. So this was how they were seen. Yeah. Interestingly, though, homosexual women were considered less of a threat, partly because they were women. Um, So Nazis didn't really see them as um, politically dangerous, but also because the Nazis figured they could still bear Aryan children, kind of a, a double standard there. 
But when Hitler was appointed chancellor in January 1933, this disturbing political trend that had been brewing for a few years suddenly became very real. Uh, within weeks of his appointment, gay bars and clubs were raided and shut down. The Institute for Sexual Science in Berlin, which had been founded back in 1919 by the gay Jewish Dr. Magnus Hirschfeld to study homosexuality, but a lot of other things too, um, like laws about sexual offenses, STIs, marital issues, they took in patients. His institute was raided and utterly destroyed in May of that same year in a mass burning of its library. And then by 1934, a special Gestapo was set up to monitor homosexuals. They collected these so-called, quote, pink lists and uh, the police had collected around the country and had kept it since 1900. And they began watching the suspects on those lists. Informers were hired. Suspects had their address books seized, which led to more suspects. In a book by Hans-George Stumpke and Rudi Finkler, one man remembered it being obvious from Hitler's ascension that there'd be trouble for homosexuals. He said, quote, in order not to mutually incriminate ourselves, we decided to no longer recognize each other. When we came across each other on the street, we passed by without looking at one another. There were certain possibilities for us to meet, but that never happened in public. And this, of course, was exactly what the Nazi party was going for, shake up the gay community, make it so uh, people couldn't talk to each other, couldn't meet anywhere, and make it politically helpless. Still, though, the criminalization of homosexuality was legally limited until September 1st, 1935, when that paragraph 175 we mentioned was amended. And so at this point, quote, lewd and lascivious acts between males, especially if they were over the age of 21, could result in prison time up to 10 years and also necessitate the, quote, loss of civil rights. Um, so that was the first big change here. The next year, Heinrich Himmler created a central office for the combating of homosexuality and abortion, which was a Gestapo subdepartment, again focused on increasing the Aryan birth rate and removing any things that were seen as obstacles in its path, such as male homosexuality and abortion. In February 1937, Himmler gave a speech on this question of the Aryan birth rate that we just mentioned. In it, he figured the ratio of men to women was already off due to war dead from World War I, but that imbalance, he thought, was made worse by the presence of gay men. So he said, quote, all things which take place in the sexual sphere are not the private affair of the individual, but signify the life and death of the nation, signify world power or Swissification. The people which had many children has the candidature for world power and world domination. A people of good race which has too few children has a one-way ticket to the grave. So strangely, the 1936 Olympics really offers us a little peek at what a pet issue this was to the Nazis, but also how they knew these ideas might be judged by outsiders. So while the police worked overtime to clean up Berlin for the games, like clean it up in a moral sort of way, shutting down bars and things, they did have to cool it while visitors were there about arresting um, gay Germans. Himmler also had a special order not to arrest any gay 
foreigners in order to avoid any sort of diplomatic incidents. But after the visitors were out of town, though, after the Olympics were over, there was this huge uptick in prosecutions under paragraph 175. And in fact, a full half of convictions during the Nazi regime came between the years of 1937 and 1939, so mostly before the war. But of course, not all of those prosecutions were about sex alone, sexuality alone, and some of them weren't even about it at all. Because even before the amendment of paragraph 175, an accusation of homosexuality could be used as a political weapon as well. And the most famous case was that of Ernest Röhm, a high-ranking Nazi official, leader of the SA, and Hitler's friend who was known to be gay. But it wasn't until he began to challenge Hitler in 1934 that he was killed in a purge on the Night of the Long Knives. So how do you get from arrests under an unfair law to internment in a concentration camp? We discussed paragraph 175, and while it allowed for punishments up to 10 years and, quote, loss of civil rights, it didn't mention anything about death sentences in concentration camps. In fact, from 1933 to 1945, an estimated 100,000 gay men were arrested with 50,000 sentenced, and most served in regular prisons. But for 5,000 to 15,000, and especially for those arrested during the war, the end point turned out to be a camp. Yeah, and really even those arrested well before the war sometimes wound up transferred from prisons to camps, sometimes even after they had served out their sentence. And an example of this is artist Richard Gruna, uh, who was arrested in 1934, convicted and sentenced to one year, three months in prison, minus his time served. But when he got out of jail, he was immediately taken back into custody by the Gestapo, who thought he had gotten off too easy, and eventually wound up in a concentration camp where he survived. Gruner was lucky, though. According to the U.S. Holocaust Memorial Museum, the death rate for gays inside camps could have been as high as 60 percent. That's kind of surprising when you consider a few things, like most of the homosexuals targeted were Germans or Austrians, not gays from occupied countries. And unlike Jews, they weren't automatically deported to ghettos, nor were they automatically transported to extermination camps. The death rate with them had less to do with a planned extermination and more to do with how they were treated once inside the camps. For example, they were often assigned to particularly hard work details or to so-called punishment companies where the hours would be longer, the breaks would be shorter, and the meals smaller. By 1942, that work-until-you-die policy was actually made official with, quote, extermination through work. Yeah, and another thing that would happen, guards might hasten them along a little bit, stage accidents where they would die while doing quarry work or brick work or something like that. The pink triangle badges or the 175s that gay men would wear in the camps to um, show what member, what group they were part of, would also single them out for particularly bad treatment, like beatings. Guards were sometimes said to use the pink triangles for target practice. And then gays would also be fast-tracked for medical experiments. So castrations were common, but um, perhaps the best-known medical experiments were done at Buchenwald, where a doctor would surgically insert testosterone capsules into his patients, hoping that that could um, medically cure them, quote, of their homosexuality, some of these men, of course, died of infection from these surgeries and these capsules placed inside of them. 
They'd also be harassed by fellow prisoners who carried gay prejudices with them into camp. Survivors across units, so survivors interred for reasons other than homosexuality, remember the pink triangles as being at the bottom of the hierarchy. One of the first accounts of life inside the camp for a paragraph 175er came out in 1972 with Heinz Hagar's The Men with the Pink Triangle. And by the way, Heinz Hagar is a pen name. In his book, which is excerpted on the Jewish Virtual Library, Hagar describes his block of fellow homosexuals, each wing with 250 men supervised by fellow prisoners, green, who were criminals from the outside world. So they'd wear the green triangle. Mm -hmm. Um, And he described how when they'd first arrive, the men were submitted to six days of pointless crushing labor. So in his case, it was moving snow from one side of the road to the other, using their coats as little wheelbarrows or buckets, sort of, and using their bare hands as shovels. He said that in other months it would um, would be moving something like dirt or sand. But the regular work involved getting up as early as 5 a.m., washing, dressing, slurping down some flour soup with half an hour before roll call, and then working until 5 p.m. or 8 p.m., depending on the season, with only one half-hour break in there. And after that, there was still evening roll call, which required total participation. Hagar wrote, quote, at every parade, those that had just died had to be present, i.e. they were laid out at the end of each block and counted as well. Only after the parade and having been tallied by the report officer were they taken away to the mortuary and subsequently burned. If the dead had to attend, of course, that meant that the sick did too. And Hagar also describes carrying out men who had just been beaten or were feverish since absentees meant more beatings and deaths for those present. Everyone's best interest to get them out there. And he also wrote about the fact that for the pink triangles, there was no solace in a group identity. There was no kind of group morale because... Talking to each other would self-incriminate kind of throws back to the quote we mentioned early in the podcast before the war started, um, not recognizing each other on the street. And then talking to others outside of the block wasn't even allowed. They weren't even allowed to approach other barracks because it was feared they might seduce other prisoners. Interestingly, though, Hager claimed that homosexuality was common in other blocks in his camp at that time, just not in the 175er block. And, of course, any weakness shown often meant a ticket to the medical wing. Hagar wrote that the dormitory windows had a centimeter of ice on them. Anyone found with his underclothes on in bed or his hand under his blanket, there were checks almost every night, was taken outside and had several bowls of water poured over him before being left standing outside for a good hour. Only a few people survived this treatment. The least result was bronchitis, and it was rare for any gay person taken into the sick bay to come out alive. We who wore the pink triangle were prioritized for medical experiments, and these generally ended in death. For my part, therefore, I took every care I could not to offend against the regulations. So... We mentioned earlier that female homosexuality wasn't criminalized in paragraph 175 because Nazis didn't see lesbians as a political threat. They figured that the women could still bear babies, and they were concerned that it would actually be hard to tell the difference between close friendships between women and lesbianism. But lesbians were still, of course, sometimes sent to prison or camp, sometimes under labels other than the pink triangle label, sometimes prostitutes, sometimes asocial 
triangle. Um, thus, that's why some lesbians consider the black triangle, which was the badge for asocials, a pride symbol like the pink triangle. Um, sometimes, though, a lesbianism charge accompanied something else, you know, another type of charge, as it did for some gay men, too. Henny Shorman, for instance, was arrested in 1940 as a, quote, licentious lesbian and a, quote, stateless Jew. She was gassed two years later for that combination of charges. So instead, when it came to lesbians, the government focused on cutting off their community from each other, shutting down bars and meeting places and forcing lesbians to either stay underground or even form marriages of convenience with friends, so put on a charade in a sense. So Hagar's account certainly helped draw attention to this history that has been somewhat swept under the table or had been swept under the table. Um, West Germany weakened paragraph 175 in 1969 and further limited it the year after Hagar's book came out. But before that point, homosexuality was still criminal, which I find just appalling. Yeah, and just a side note here, um, 1969 was, of course, the same year as Stonewall, which I think Katie and Candace did an episode on a few years back. So uh, these two rights movements have almost been twinned because they started at the same time. But um, going back to what you just said, Devlina, that homosexuality was still criminal, immediately after the war, some of the victims freed from concentration camps still had to serve out their prison time. I mean, that's what I find most unbelievable about this. Um, others who, who were free, you know, had a new start in life, understandably wanted to put their past behind them, um, or at least not risk their new future for speaking out about their time in camps or their time in prison. One of the earliest memories came from Richard Gruna, the artist that we mentioned earlier. He published a collection of lithographs on his experience in 1947. Now, others started speaking out in the 70s, 80s, and 90s, around the same time that the pink triangle was taken up as a sign of remembrance. So it's fortunate that the collection of oral histories began when it did, since as of last year, there are no known surviving men who wore pink triangles. Yeah, the last one died in 2011, Rudolf Brazda. Uh, he was 98 years old, and he had spent three years at Buchenwald and had only made his story public in 2008 after a lifetime spent in France working as a roofer. I watched a video of him speaking, and he talked about how um, as the allies were approaching and the camp was being evacuated, he was hidden for 14 days with pigs um, to, to, to stay safe and not have to go on the march and um, made it out. And he also talked about just how free he felt when he was, he was done and he decided, all right, it's really time to, to get things together. And um, he sounded like he had a successful life after that. But in a book about his life, he also said, quote, seeing people die became such an everyday thing. It left you feeling practically indifferent. Now, every time I think back on those terrible times, I cry. But back then, just like everyone in the camps, I had hardened myself so I could survive. I have known it all from the basis repression to the grand emancipation of today. Sad so, story. Yeah, a very sad story, but um, I guess one with some hope at the end because these people did get to talk about what happened to them finally. Yeah, and we get to learn about it. But, you know, it's just sad on so many levels, not just the obvious reasons, the the deaths and the treatment in, that they received in concentration camps, but also just having to, both on the inside and the outside, pretend to be something that they weren't. Yeah. 
I mean, what you had mentioned about just having to walk by people on the street and not acknowledge them. Yeah, and um, I, I know I mentioned it a few times. The U.S. Uh, Holocaust Memorial Museum has a lot of great information on all aspects of the Holocaust, but um, they did have a lot of photographs, too. I think that really brought the point home for me. Photographs of couples from the 20s, um, just, you know, a normal staged photo. They look happy, um, and then... You know, you you know what's about to happen for for a lot of these guys, and it's really it's really sad. Well, it's a tough story, as we mentioned, but just another one to add into our picture of World War II, which seems to grow and grow as we continue to tell these stories. So if you have any comments about this story, maybe some things that we missed or aspects that we didn't cover, please feel free to write to us. We're at HistoryPodcast at Discovery.com. You can also look us up on Facebook and on Twitter at Missed in History. And we also have a lot of World War II content on our website. It's all at www.HowStuffWorks.com. Hi guys, so it's movie club time again, and this time we are going to talk about a World War II movie, is that right, Sarah? Yeah, we were going to recommend the Ken Burns documentary called The War, uh, if you just want to get sort of a broader picture of World War II and all of the many stories contained within um, the many people involved many countries, um, be a good place to start. Yeah, I mean, Ken Burns is always great. He's always thorough. Amazing images and good storytelling. And we'd like to discuss this again on our Facebook page. So we'll probably put something out there and give you guys a chance to respond since we're trying to give offer a different movie suggestion every week. We don't want to get too much into it before you have a chance to see it, but we'll talk about it there. Yeah, and of course, as always, for a limited time, we have an offer available for History Class listeners, 30-day trial membership at Netflix. You just have to go to www.netflix.com slash history. Um, all movies subject to availability on instant, but um, give, it a, give it a watch and let us know what you think. Yep, so watch the movie, and then again, you can find us on Facebook for the discussion. We will see you there. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com.